You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Again, good to see everyone. Glad you're here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 is where we're going to start today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. <clears throat> I'll read through verse 25, pray for us, and then we'll dive into it. The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you, and I'm just reminded of your words in John 15, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Uh, that even our best efforts are fruitless apart from you. And so I pray that right now in this moment that you will help us to recenter ourselves around you, that you will arrest our attention, that you will help these ancient sacred truths to fall on us afresh today, uh, that we will root ourselves even more in the soil that is your grace that is poured out for us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, a little over a couple years ago, I met for the very first time with my spiritual director, uh, Rich Plass, who told me on our very first meeting that if I did not change the way that I was living, that within 10 years, I was going to die of a heart attack, uh, which was not the most encouraging first meeting you could have with somebody. But uh, not exactly convinced, I decided to go and meet with a doctor, Dr. Spanos in Jonesboro. And after a series of tests she ran, she basically came to the same conclusion. And I'll never forget sitting in her office across from her, and she was reading my report to me and telling me all sorts of numbers and pronouncing words that I could not pronounce. And she could probably tell my eyes were beginning to glaze over a little bit. And finally, she looked at me. She said, hey, I need you to listen to me. She says, I know you look fit on the outside, but I don't want you to be one of these guys who's out running one day and you fall over dead. I remember thinking to myself, well, that's where you're wrong because I don't run, you know. (laughs) But uh, she continued to talk, and basically what she said to me is, look, you're one of the most dangerous ones because though you look healthy on the outside, you're not that healthy on the inside. And the reality is, no matter what you look like on the outside, if your heart is not in a good place, one day you can be just doing your own thing and then just fall over. And as I begin to think about that this past week in light of this new series that we're kicking off, I begin to think how the exact same thing is true when it comes to our lives, spiritually speaking, in that you can be successful in the eyes of the world. You can get a promotion. You can be beautiful. You can be rich. You can even be religious or a spiritual leader or like the idea of God. But if you neglect what is going on inside of you, If you neglect your heart of what is going on underneath the hood, eventually, spiritually speaking, you can fall over. This is why the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, who's considered to be one of the wisest men in all of Scripture, says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, you are to guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. 
In other words, what Solomon is saying, and really what the Bible says all over, is if you want to live the life you were longing to live, if you want to have a healthy life, you have to make sure you have a healthy heart. But here's the thing, and you have to get this today. If you want a healthy life, you actually need to understand that a healthy life doesn't start with a healthy heart, but rather a healthy life starts with healthy habits. Because plain and simple, the habits of your life create the condition of your heart. I want to say that again. The habits of your life create the condition of your heart. Or put another way, because every time you do something, it does something to you. For example, every time you eat a piece of chocolate cake, when you do something to that cake, it does something to you. Or every time you pull out your phone and you scroll through it, every time you do something to your phone, it does something to you. What that means then is every time, right, you are doing something and it does something to you and it changes you, we need to be people who make a decision, a conscious decision to implement healthy habits in our life. Listen to me, not overnight, but over time will begin to shape us and form us into the men and women we were created to be. And you see, because God knows that this is true, because God actually wants you to have a better 2019 than even you want to have because God wants you to flourish, because he wants you to grow, because he wants Fellowship Paragol to be a healthy church that is made up of healthy men and women who are marked by the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. What he does for us is he provides for us four essential practices or four habits that we're going to look at over the next four weeks that we must adopt into our lives if we want to experience the abundant life that Christ has come to give us. Does that make sense? For two of you, awesome. For the rest of you, it might be a long sermon. So four practices we're going to look at. And this morning, I want us to look at the practice. I want us to look at the habit that we have to cultivate in our own lives, which is the habit of gathering together as a church. If you look back with me in Hebrews chapter 10, which we read earlier in verse 24, again, the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is exactly, but The writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the, what's the word? Habit of some, but encouraging one another all the day more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in the first century, which is when this letter of Hebrews is written, Christ's followers were facing deadly persecution because of their faith. And so, um, because hanging out with Christians made it obvious that you were a Christian, basically what would happen is it would put a mark on your back and make it even more likely that you and your family would be murdered for your faith. And therefore, as you can imagine, as a result of this, what was happening is some people were saying, you know what, instead of showing up to church on Sunday morning, or rather than going to my missional community meal, I think I'm just going to sleep in. I think I'm just going to listen to a podcast or I'm going to live stream that church service or I'm going to watch TBN or just kind of pull up the U version on my phone and do that. But I'm not going to get out because I do not want to endanger my life and the life of my family. I mean, it seems like a pretty logical and legitimate excuse not to show up on a Sunday morning. Would you agree? I mean, if, if I called you and I was like, hey, I missed you on Sunday and you were like, yeah, that's because I was told if I left my house, I'd be murdered. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to guilt you. I'm going to be like, oh, well, man, like, good call on staying inside. But what's mind-blowing to me is rather than the writer of Hebrews saying to these people, hey, I get it. 
Your life is in jeopardy. Like, stay inside. Instead, what does he say to these people who are not showing up? He says, don't make a habit of this. Don't neglect, he says, meeting together. But rather, listen, because not gathering is more dangerous to you and your family than actually gathering with the church. He says, make sure that you treat this gathering as an essential habit, even if it means, listen, risking your own physical lives in the process. Isn't that crazy? I mean, clearly, according to God's word, we need to gather regularly as a church. Question is this morning, is why? Why? Like, why take the risk? Why get out of our comfort zone? Why do we need to actually gather together with the church? Why do we need to make this a habit in our own lives? Well, that's the question that I want to try to answer in our time together today. And the way that I want to do that is by looking in Acts chapter 2. And so if you will, flip over with me to Acts chapter 2. Just go to the left. Acts chapter 2. If it helps you, it's on page 1018 in my Bible. Acts chapter 2, and what we have here is the very first church recorded in the Bible. It's a group of Christ followers who were meeting together regularly. We find out in this passage in temples, so it's in a large gathering, kind of like we're doing right now. And they would meet in homes, kind of like we do in missional communities. They had large gatherings and they had small gatherings. And we're going to find out why exactly they were making a regular practice of this, despite the fact that eventually their lives would be jeopardized, and some of them would even be murdered as a result of it. Verse 42, if you look with me, Acts 2 verse 42, it says, and they, that's the early church, devoted themselves. And before I go any further, I would encourage you, if you have a pen, circle that word devoted. Because whatever you are most devoted to, please hear me, it will shape, inform, and direct your existence. Whatever you are most devoted to will be the lens by which you see the entire world. And therefore, it will shape your minutes. It will shape your hours. It will shape your days. It will shape your entire life. And so if you're most devoted to your image, rather whether it be your image or, or working hard or being a mom or climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it may be, whatever you are most devoted to will absolutely define you, direct you, and drive your life. And the reason I share that is because for the early church, look, more than they were devoted to anyone or anything else, they were devoted to gathering together as a church around Jesus Christ. This is why Ray Ortland, who is a pastor in Emmanuel that we love and admire, says the following, when the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit Jesus into the margins of their busy lives. What he means by that is, A lot of times in our culture, we're trying to live like everyone in the world and then fit Jesus into the nooks and crannies of our life, like whatever's left over. So for the early church, that was, they didn't do that. He says they literally redefined themselves around a new and movable center. Jesus was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his calls first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their very lives. Is that convicting to anybody else other than me? And I'm a pastor. These were people who were devoted. And if you look back in verse 42, when they came together, they were devoted to four things, four essentials that marked their gathering. And the first thing we see in here that they would come together and be devoted to, it says in verse 42, was the apostles' teaching. That's the way of saying they were devoted to the Bible. And because the Bible is all about Jesus... 
They were devoted to the gospel. They were a group of people who would come together and they would sit under the teaching of leaders that God had put over them and they would say, please tell us more about who God is, what he's done for us in Christ and how that shapes who I am and how I'm called to live. And you see, the reason this is so important is, please get this, guys, life is complex. And as human beings, we are wired, we are hardwired in such a way that we cannot not try to take complexity and turn it into simplicity. We are people who are hardwired to take news and chaos and social media and images and our Facebook feed and our own life experiences, and somehow we try to put it all together in a story that helps us make sense of the world around us. Or put another way, we are, in the words of Bobet Buster, narrative creatures, which means we cannot not try to make sense of our lives through narratives that we create in our heads and then, for better or worse, live out the script or this story in our daily life. And I can give you example after example of this in my own life. Um, just within the church world, um, culture will tell us that a church is successful if they are committed to the ABCs. And so uh, that's attendance, baptisms, and cash. Right, And so the more people you have on a Sunday morning, the more baptisms you have and the more cash you have, the more successful you are as a, as a pastor and as a church. And because that is a story that I hear in our culture a lot, it's a story that I can tend to believe. And it can therefore shape myself as a pastor to where there's some days I wake up and I'm like, man, I am a failure. Like I just need to quit. Right, Because I look at other people who are more successful to me in the eyes of the world. And because I believe this story, right, it, it, it can shape me as a pastor and also as a husband and a father. It can cause my joy to diminish. It's because of a story that I'm building up in my head and then living out of. And some of you say, well, I'm not a pastor. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, think about it like this. And I could give you a lot of examples, but I'll give you one. Think about the way our culture talks about sex. When our culture talks about sex, how do, what is the story that our culture tells us? It tells us basically this, that sex is simply physical. It's just biological. There, there's no spiritual element to it whatsoever. Therefore, basically, as long as you're not hurting anybody, go have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And that's not a fact. That is a story that the culture is telling us. And it's a story that is quite different than the story the Bible tells us about sexuality. Because what does the Bible say about sex? The Bible says... That sex is so good and it is so powerful that it's like fire, right? Fire is a good thing, but it's also a powerful thing. And if you don't have fire within the right boundaries, it'll burn a house down. It'll burn a relationship down. The same is true when it comes to, to sex, right? If it's in boundaries, like within the right proper boundaries, then marriage, it'll also warm a house up. That's the story the Bible tells. And then listen, according to what story you believe... Again, for better or worse, shapes your life. And because the early church knew this, they would regularly come together and say, I want to make sure that I am aligning my heart and my life around the story of God, that I am walking in step with that ultimate reality. Mike Cosper, who was a worship pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, the church I was a part of when I lived there, says this. For the early church, the gathering was not an event designed to wow or impress a lot of times in our culture, maybe you're even doing it right now without realizing it, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out, is this church service going to wow you more than the church service down the street? That's what we're basically looking for. So in the early church, that's not the way it was designed to be. You didn't attend as a spectator, but as a participant in yours and your church's spiritual formation. In the gathering, we remember our identity as gospel-formed people, journeying, journeying together through the story that gave us our identity, then being sent out to live gospel-shaped lives. 
When it came to the early church, they saw their gathering as a God-given space that was meant to interrupt their busy lives, to intercept the lies they were believing and then relocating them in the story of God. It's what we do each week when we come together. One of the ways we do it is through what I'm doing right now. It's through the teaching of the scriptures. It's so important, guys, that when you listen today, that you listen as a full contact listener, that you hear the word of God being read over you and spoken and taught so that you can then allow it to intercept the lies that you've been believing about yourself and the world around you. So we teach the scriptures. And then another way that we try to come under the apostles' teaching and be shaped by the scripture is not just through the teaching of it like I'm doing now, but we also do it through music and liturgy. And to help you kind of understand that, and maybe you haven't even thought about it this way, I've, I want to bring Luke up. So you can go ahead and come up, Luke. Y'all welcome Luke up to the, uh, the stage. <clears throat> and I want Luke basically to share with us how music and liturgy help shape us. So if you don't know Luke, he actually oversees our worship team. He's one of the five guys you'll see that come up here and lead, but he oversees it all. And so Luke, why don't you kind of just share how music and liturgy is something that we use to help us relocate yeah. ourselves in the story of God. Yeah, thanks, Jared. So if you're unfamiliar with the term liturgy, it simply means a rhythm. It means how we do things, how we order our Sunday morning. And every church has liturgy. So it, uh, it, it, maybe you have a background to where uh, maybe it was a real formal type of liturgy to where the uh, people were wearing special clothing and it was real um, lots of responsive reading and responding back and forth. Or maybe it was, maybe it felt like it was just kind of thrown together at the last minute. Uh, I think of like uh, the church that I grew up in, it was um, the choir comes out and they sing a chorus to get everybody going. And then you sing three songs, you skip the third verse for whatever reason, you take up offering, and then the preacher, pre- there's a special probably of somebody who sometimes can't sing, who all wants to sing, and then the preacher preaches, and another song, an invitation. At Fellowship, we take our liturgy very seriously, because think of liturgy as a recipe, there are good recipes. There are not so good recipes. Think, go, go with me. Like, open up your spice cabinet at home and dump everything in that spice cabinet into a bowl. Put a little broth in it, maybe some chicken and some vegetables. If you're like my spice cabinet, it's going to be saltier than the Dead Sea, and it's not going to taste good. But you can take a good, carefully crafted recipe and make something great. At our house, we make lasagna, and we make it out of homemade sauce. And it's got, it's got measured out basil and Italian ingredients and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to give it all to you. But <laughs> at the end, once you eat it, it's the best lasagna you've ever eaten. Sorry, Grandma. It is. And so think of your liturgy as a recipe. So in a typical Sunday, we're... Participating in things like singing and preaching and prayer and, and giving and communion and responding and a benediction. And all these things are making up the recipe of our liturgy. All right. And we follow what's called a gospel narrative liturgy or a gospel arc. So we want to reorient our Sundays to where each Sunday through every part you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing the good news of Jesus. So in our music, you're going to hear a call to worship. A creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You're going to hear the creation, which is a call to worship. that says God is holy, 
And he's a creator and he is a great God. And not only does he ask us, he demands that we worship him. And so we'll sing songs like, Great Are You, Lord, or This Is Amazing Grace, that celebrate who God is. And then we move to a time of confession. In light of God's holiness, it reminds us that we're broken and we're sinful. And confession should be a daily part of our life. And so we move to a time of confessing our sin before a holy God. And oftentimes the worship leader will lead us in a prayer and a responsive reading. And then we'll sing a song that confesses our need for God. And then we move to to the point of redemption because God doesn't leave us in our sin. He sent Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we get to celebrate Jesus' work by singing more about the redemptive work of Christ. So we sing songs like, Death Was Arrested. Or we sing songs, I mean, you name it. They're all singing about Jesus. And we celebrate that. And then we move to a time of now what Christ has done for us, we sing a restoration type of song of who we are now because of what Christ has done. So it's songs like a son of God. Because of Jesus' work, we're now sons of God. We long for a day when Jesus is going to make everything restored and make everything right. So we sing songs like we just sang, even so come, when we long for the return of our king. And then we move to a time of responding. Because of who Christ is, because of who, let's back up, because of who who God is, how we have failed to live up to his standard, he's sending Jesus to redeem us, making us a new creation. We respond to that by giving, by hearing the preaching of the word, by taking communion, and by being sent with a benediction to live out our new identity in Christ. So we take very careful, we, 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 we craft our Sundays with specific ingredients that we're following a gospel narrative so that we can each hear the good news mm-hmm. every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Thanks for sharing, Luke. Appreciate it, man. <clears throat> <clears throat> Looking smooth today, by the way. So, so we want to be a people like the early church devoted to the apostles' teaching through the teaching of the Scripture, through music, through liturgy. But secondly, what we see in our passage, if you look back in verse 42 with me, We see the early church was not only devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoted, it says, to fellowship. I'm not sure if you've heard this or not, but doctors are now sounding the alarm about what public health officials are calling in America the loneliness epidemic. Have you heard about this? And this epidemic is not only considered to be a major leading cause in depression. In other words, what they're now discovering is a lot of people who say they're depressed are not actually depressed, they're lonely. But what they're also discovering is that it's the now the number one health crisis in America. They're saying above cancer, obesity, and heart disease. Loneliness is surely part of the reason why Americans consume 99% of the world's hydrocodone and 81% of the world's oxycodone. Because more and more people, I would say, in our culture are experiencing fewer and fewer and fewer deep, lasting relationships. And therefore, people from all walks of life are trying to numb the pain of their loneliness from pills to pornography, from smartphones to Netflix to working too many hours. I mean, you name it. And in our fast-paced, overly busy, busy digital society like ours, what we need more than anything is to recover this idea of fellowship. Because in our culture, in many ways, we are moving, we are almost coming apart at the seams. We are all moving in all these different directions. And when you go back and you look at this word fellowship, what you mean is it's actually the Greek word koinonia. 
which means to be bound together literally by an unbreakable bond. It means to be glued. It means to be held together by something so tightly that we never come apart. And listen to me very carefully. As a church, we believe that glue, that bond that holds us together should not be our personal preferences, should not be our personalities or our hobbies or our stage of life, but rather what brings us together and what keeps us together is the fact that we are all sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I hope that you hear that today because in the words of Brennan Manning, the church is not meant to be a museum for saints, but a hospital bed for sinners. It is meant to be a place where the broken and the burnt out and the hopelessly lost can come and find healing and rest for their weary souls. I was talking with a man recently who had kind of popped in and out of fellowship some. He'd even come to our missional community a little bit, and then he quit coming, and I reached out to him, and I said, hey, been missing you. would love to see you come back. And, he, and basically, he responded in a text, and he said, hey, I appreciate you reaching out. Miss you guys, too. I know that I need you. But then listen to this. He said, let me get my crap together first, and then I promise I'll be back. To which I responded, and I told him, look, I said, man, if I waited for me to get my crap together before I went to the church, I'd still be on the outside looking in. And what I told him, I said, look, man, what you see in fellowship, what you see among us is not a bunch of people who have it together. In fact, what you see is quite the opposite. Amen. Because what you see is a bunch of imperfect people who are standing in need of one perfect person together. And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you can get on board with that, if you can come to a place where you can actually admit, my life is a mess, I don't have it all together, and therefore that's why I need Jesus, then listen, you qualify to be a member of the church. And if you're like, well, why would I ever want to be a member of a church? Because listen, the loneliness that you feel, the ache that is inside of your soul, that desire that is put inside of you from birth to be loved and accepted despite your flaws, that will never be fulfilled apart from fellowship, apart from connecting with brothers and sisters in the faith. Some of you, please hear me today, some of you have been taught that if you're going to be fulfilled in this life, all you need is just you and your own little personal relationship with Jesus. That's not true. That is a lie. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know what the church is called? It's called the body of Christ, which means you need the church because the church is the place where you experience the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus in a real and tangible flesh and blood way. You need the church. You need the church. I need you and you need me. And I know for some of you, man, like this is scary. Some of you, when you think about getting involved in a church, it makes you anxious because you've been hurt badly by people. Some of you, you've been hurt by people who claim to be Christians. You've been hurt by leaders in the church. And, and I just want to say, if that's where you are, I want to apologize and say, I'm sorry. I am sorry. But please hear me, though it is in relationships that you were hurt, it is only in relationships that you were healed. Because it is in relationships, in a Christ-centered relationship, where you can be known, you can be long, and you can be loved. 
This is why we encourage you guys every single week. Don't just stop here on Sunday mornings. Get involved in a missional community. So I would encourage you to plug into a DNA, which Adam will come up in a couple weeks and talk even more about, to get into a group with three men or three women where you can experience discipleship, nurture, and accountability. And if you're here and you're like, I've tried that before and it didn't work. Done it, didn't work. Well, listen, every situation is different. And I will acknowledge that, but if you truly want to experience the fellowship that we're talking about here, that the early church experienced, please know it's going to take three things on your part. It's going to take intentionality, which means you cannot, guys, please, you cannot just show up in a room and say, now you be everything to me. You be to me what I want you to be to me. No, you be to them what you want them to be to you. It takes intentionality. You can't just go sit in a corner and be like, all right, everybody love me. Make my life better. I, you got three months to do it, by the way. It takes intentionality and it takes time. Because we're all complicated people. Would you agree with that? And complicated people don't change overnight. It takes time. And then third, I would say this. It also takes a lot of grace. And you know why it takes grace? Because the people that you're trying to get into a relationship with are just as jacked up as you are. That's why it takes grace. They have their own issues, their own addictions. There's time where their kids act like little midget demons as well, right? They have their own struggles, their own skeletons in their closet, their own religious hangups. And therefore, listen, fellowship's just hard. It's hard. Relationship is hard. Relationships are messy. Relationships take time. But it's in the middle of that mess and in the middle of that struggle and those tears that Jesus really does want to do his best work in your life. The early church understood that. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. And then much more quickly, in the last two, we see next they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Norman Wurzba, who is a Duke professor and wrote a book called Food and Faith, which I think is the best book on the planet about food and faith, about how Christians should view meals, writes the following. He says, eating joins people together. And to God through forms of natural communion. I love that phrase. Too complex to fathom. It introduces us to a graced world of hospitality, a creation that from the beginning and constantly through its soil absorbs death and makes room for newness of life. Eating involves us in a daily life and death drama in which beyond all comprehension, some life is sacrificed so the other life can thrive. It establishes a membership that confirms all creatures as profoundly in need of each other and upon God to provide life's nutrition and vitality. Eating demonstrates that we cannot live alone. Listen to that. Eating demonstrates we cannot live alone and that there is no human fellowship without a table, no table without a kitchen, no kitchen without a garden, no garden without the forces productive of life, and therefore no life without its source in God. For the early church, unlike our fast food culture, they saw food as a vital element in their spiritual development. Because they saw food, please hear me, not only as a way for them tangibly tangibly to remember their union with one another, but also their union with Christ. And therefore, because of that, guess what they did regularly? It says it in the text. They would eat meals in homes, kind of like we do with missional communities, And then they would also partake of communion, which is bread and juice, just as we do every Sunday, as a way to remember that I no longer have to live in fear, shame, or guilt because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So they came together and they ate. And then finally, it says in here, they devoted themselves to prayer. 
Now, there's a lot I could say here, but for the sake of time, let me just say this. I am all about personal prayer. My wife can attest to this every morning, 6 a.m. I'm going to get up, bring myself some coffee. I'm going to go to the same chair, and I'm going to read Scripture, and I'm going to pray. I've got reminders in my phone that prompt me to pray throughout the day for different people or different reasons. I'm all about personal prayer, but please hear me carefully. Personal prayer alone will not result in the working of God in and through your life to the degree that God will work in it whenever you engage in public prayer. Uh, This is why in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching how to pray, he said, do not pray my father, but he said, pray what? Our father. Jesus assumed when he was teaching his disciples how to pray that they would be coming to their father as children together believing that God is a good God who always gives good gifts to those who ask. And that is why we see not only here in Acts 2, but all through the book of Acts, when the early church came together, they devoted themselves to prayer. And that is why as a church, I want us to be more and more famous for the same thing. That's why whenever we come together on Sundays and I'm praying or the worship leader is praying, my hope is not that when we're praying, you're like, okay, this is a break for me to check my phone or think about something else or just kind of rest my brain for a little bit. I hope that while we're praying, you're also to yourself praying. This is why every Wednesday at 11.15, our three full-time staff members, myself and Adam and Robert, we pray in my office. And we, when it's pretty outside, we go to the cemetery and we pray. And we encourage others to come and be a part of that. On your lunch break, just stop by 45 minutes and join us in praying. We truly believe that we cannot do the work of God apart from the power of God. That God can do more in five minutes than we could do in 50 years. This is why we have prayer meetings every other month. And it's why we pay to have babysitters to take care of our kids. So we can't use that as an excuse of, oh, I got kids, right? We truly believe the health of our church is measured by the amount of prayer that we do together. I love what David Fritch says. He says, do not despise your small prayer gatherings. For every major revival has its origins with a small band of intercessors faithfully crying out. And that is true. You can go and mark, you can go and, uh, and research any revival in America. It all started with a prayer gathering. Pretty crazy to think about. Small gatherings precede big breakthroughs. When we gather to pray, regardless of the size, we convene the very court of heaven on earth. Our prayer gatherings, therefore, are the most important, powerful gatherings in our city. So in summary this morning, when it comes to gathering, the early church made it a habit that they built into their lives. They did it in large settings like this. They did it in smaller settings like a home. They did it as sinners saved by grace. And they did it devoted, we see here, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And each year as a church, because we believe this is essential in our lives for our own development, because we believe that we cannot survive, much less thrive, apart from the gathering, we call our members every single year to recommit in their membership renewal forms to gathering regularly. And hopefully, if you're a member of this church, you've already received that membership renewal form. It should be in your email. If you didn't get it in your email, let us know. Um, also, uh, you should be getting a link through your GroupMe app, through your MC leaders, um, hopefully within like so the next 24 hours. But here's what I want you to see. As it comes time for our membership renewal, and again, we do this every single year as a way of kind of realigning and refocusing on what it is that God's called us to do in this next year. Please realize when it comes to the the portion on gathering, a lot of what we've just talked about, guys, this is not optional for a Christian. 
what I have just said to you, it's not my words. This is not a fellowship thing. This is a God thing. We are commanded in the scripture together. It is essential in our development. And not only would I say it's essential, but I would also say this as we end. It's also a privilege. And I don't just mean because we're one of the few places in the world that can actually gather without worrying about losing our own lives. But I mean it's a privilege because in the Bible, do you realize whenever the Bible talks about the church, it doesn't just call it the body of Christ, but anybody else know what else the church is called? It's called the bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, the church is called the bride of Christ, which means, and I want you to think about this, when you come together and you love one another and we serve one another, you're loving and serving the wife of Jesus. How incredible is that? And I just believe that whenever, when, when, when God sees us coming together then before, because he loves his church so much that he gave his life for her, that, man, it just brings him a lot of joy to see us doing the same thing. And I just want to encourage you to remember that today, even as we come to a close, that remember, the bride of Christ is not a perfect bride. It's actually imperfect. In, in Hosea, we're reminded that, that, that even though we've been brought together with Jesus, that every time we sin, it's like we have an affair on Jesus. It's like we cheat on him. And what's so beautiful to think about is that Jesus knew that about his church. He knew how imperfect we would be. And yet, because he loves his church so much, he loves his bride so much, even though he knew we would never be faithful to him, he laid down his life for us. And now he promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And if you're here today and you, and you have believed that, if you have man, brought yourself under the gospel, if you believe that, man, yes, that Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, has brought me into the relationship and this marriage with him, then each week we remember it by partaking of communion. As again, a tangible reminder, as Luke said, a liturgy, as we tear off that bread and we dip in the juice to remember who we are in Christ. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, if you are not a part of this family, listen, please know this, the only thing keeping you out of this family is not your sin, it's your pride. It's your pride. And what we would encourage you to do today is rather than partaking of communion, partake of Christ. Admit you don't have it all together and that you need Jesus. And if you're here and you, have more, you want more information about that, you can come talk to me. You can talk to Adam, Luke. Any of us would love to help you understand what is the best next steps for you and your family. If you're here today and you are, as I said, a Christian, this is your first time and you want to partake of communion, these tables are not closed off to you. Anybody is able to partake of this. And so just so you know, so you're not confused, uh, the way it works is I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and you can file through, you can tear off a piece of bread, you can dip it in the juice, and then you can return back to your seat. We'll sing one song together as a response and then we'll be dismissed. And a lot of that, I'm going to invite you to stand as the band comes forward. I want to pray for us. <clears throat> and then we can partake of communion together. Father, I thank you so much for your word that you have given us. I thank you that you have given us habits, you have given us practices that we can put into our lives so that we can experience more of the life that you have created us to experience. I do pray that there is nobody here that walks out in shame or fear or guilt. God, like many areas in our lives, many of us can look at the gathering and realize it's a place we have not been perfect. It's a place where we have failed to take advantage of this habit that you have given us as practice. And I pray that if there's anyone here who, who can relate to that, that again, they would see that Jesus, your grace is sufficient and that they would come to you and they would experience that grace today and that they would trust you more and more, move deeper and deeper into the reality of who you are and what you've done for them. And it's in Christ's name that we do pray and ask these things. Amen.